Welcome, and thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode until the question and answer session. Today's conference call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. I will now introduce the conference host, the Honorable Jane Harmon, Director, President, and CEO of the Wilson Center. You may begin. Thank you, Operator. Good afternoon to many on the East Coast of the United States. Good afternoon to at least one uh, in Alaska and several uh, in the U.K., and I'm not sure where else, uh, but welcome to the 144th, I'm not making this up, Ground Truth Briefing hosted by the Wilson Center. Uh, as the spread of COVID-19 accelerates in the U.S. and Europe and all over the world, we hope you and your loved ones are healthy and in close communication, but actually doing what your health uh, authorities uh, advise, certainly in the Washington area, and staying home. Um, headlines right now uh, are all about the pandemic, and rightfully so, but uh, all of you know that the Wilson Center, named three years in a row as the number one think tank in the world for regional studies, has a responsibility to keep you informed about other critical developments taking place domestically and internationally. These are the events that our leaders will have to respond to in a post-coronavirus world. We never may have a totally pure post-virus world, but we're certainly going to have a post-world, and hopefully it'll be one we enjoy and one where um, uh, places like the Wilson Center uh, still uh, have a, 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 a large uh, imprint. Uh, today's discussion is a collaboration between our Kennan and Polar Institutes. We will be discussing a report by uh, Mathieu Buleg of Chatham House, who is on the panel, entitled Russia's Military Posture in the European Arctic. Geopolitical competition is heating up in the Arctic. Although it is still largely seen as a zone of cooperation, not confrontation, uh, maybe a unique zone of cooperation, not confrontation, Russia's military buildup in the Arctic has, caused, has caught the attention of NATO allies and other players there, to put it lightly. Their response, not to mention climate change, uh, will shape the dynamics of the region in the coming decades. To give some more context and introduce the rest of our speakers, uh, including Mike Sfrega, the vaunted uh, head of our Polar Institute, who is on this phone from uh, Alaska, uh, I'll uh, turn the program over to our very own uh, firefighter, Matt Rajansky, uh, who also is an enormously esteemed and impressive uh, head of our uh, Canon Institute. So uh, over to you, Matt. Well, thank you very much, Jane. And uh, I will acknowledge the sense in which talking about an issue that feels geographically far away, even though in many respects it's much, much closer uh, than we uh, necessarily appreciate in our day-to-day -day politics, it feels it's something of a remove from the urgency of the public health crisis that faces the entire world. Um, and yet I think there's uh, a very important sense in which the dynamics of what had been uh, a, a space of cooperation, uh, a zone of relative peace and stability and of functional international mechanisms, that is to say the Arctic, uh, was taken for granted. Uh, and now, much more recently, uh, has become or it appears to be becoming a contested space. And I think that that metaphor is a way of processing a lot that's going on right now, uh, including both the public health crisis that we face, uh, public health being a topic that one would have thought maybe just even a decade ago, uh, and certainly even in the Cold War, uh, was a kind of zone of common uh, human endeavor, uh, now is being very much contested along uh, nationalistic lines, many narratives uh, contesting uh, the, the responsibility for the outbreak and so on. And so there is actually a common thread here, and I think it will behoove all of us to think about the dynamics of the way that nations interact with one another in spaces of shared impact and shared responsibility, um, just to connect today's discussion with uh, the broader reality we all find ourselves in. Um, it's, it's very much a Wilson Center event to be able to have this conversation and to be able to have it 
with such a phenomenal panel of experts. Uh, experts. Matthew was, of course, going to visit us uh, in Washington, and we very much wanted to host him in person, um, but we're fortunate that we can do so uh, now and add uh, a number of our other fantastic voices along the way. So what I'm going to do, uh, I'll, I'll cut off my uh, musings here, introduce uh, each of the speakers just before they speak. They'll speak for not more than five minutes. That'll leave us plenty of time uh, for questions. And I would just encourage uh, each of you as you're listening, if a question comes to your mind, uh, write it down, tap it out with your thumbs, uh, and press star one on your keypad. That will get you into the question queue, uh, which will help me and the other moderators to know uh, how many questions we have and manage our time well. So if you think you want to ask a question, uh, please press star one at any time. It's not going to interrupt the call. Uh, all right, so without further ado, uh, Matthew Balagu in uh, London is uh, a research fellow in the Russia-Eurasia program at Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. His research focuses particularly on Eurasian security and defense, uh, as well as Russian domestic and foreign policy. And he's just recently authored Chatham House's report, Russia's Military Posture in the Arctic, Managing Hard Power in a, quote, low-tension environment. Uh, you can find that report as well as a map that he will make reference to on the event page for today's event uh, linked off the Wilson Center website. So if you're not already on that page, hop on there and download the map. I think you'll find that useful. Matthew, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Matt, for the, uh, for the introduction. And I'm, I'm really sorry I couldn't make it physically today, but I'm also doing a sort of dream, which is discussing Russian politics um, in my kitchen, which is sort of a, a Soviet box-ticking exercise. So thank you for indulging. Uh, right, so I'm going I'm to jump straight to it and present the key takeaways of this report that was uh, financed by the Finnish MOD and MFA, as well as the NATO Defense College. Um, so beyond the headlines of what Russia is doing in the Arctic, yes, they are remilitarizing the Arctic zone of the Russian Federation. Russia is clearly reinvesting time, efforts, and money into this sort of... But... In a way, remilitarizing things is what Russia does best. Russia sees the Arctic as a new challenge because of the impact of climate change and therefore does what Russia does best, which is securitizing and militarizing things. Because Russia has a very securitized understanding of its Arctic zone of the Russian Federation. It wants control over the access of foreign military activity and it wants complete and hampered and ensured access Another interesting uh, thing to note is that Russia understands the Arctic as a continuum between the European Arctic and the Pacific Arctic. Because it sits in this geographical scope that very often um, is lacking in analysis from the West, is that Russia sits on both sides of the Arctic and therefore sees a continuum in theaters of operation between what we see as a North Atlantic sea line of communication up to the North Pacific on the other side of the world. So in a way for Russia, what happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic because it goes throughout on both sides. The second point I want to make is that if you look at the priorities in the military realm, then there are two key priorities for Russia today. The first one is defending what they call the bastion defense, the sort of perimeter or perimeter defense around the Kola Peninsula that seeks to ensure the survivability of the second strike nuclear deterrent because the Kola Peninsula hosts today about two-thirds and is therefore very important for Russia to keep control of this, uh, of this bastion. Second priority is sovereignty enforcement over what could be argued to be a new border. Because of the impact of climate change, there is a need for increased perimeter control because Russia sees the potential increase of NATO and US activity under, underwater and also in the air and on surface vessels in the region. And therefore, Russia And I'll be happy to, um, to take in questions regarding capabilities more specifically. But there are a few caveats to this remilitarization. The first one is that it is not really Arctic specific. And what Russia is doing in the Arctic cannot also be found in other theaters of operation along the uh, eastern flank of the alliance, for instance, and throughout Europe with Russia's grazing activities. Um, it is part of Russia's usual assertive force and signaling to the West and beyond that 
this Arctic is Russian and is here to stay. And therefore, there's a sort of performativity as well of Russian capabilities. The second caveat is that Russia's strategy is about removing tension away from the Arctic zone of the Russian Federation as much as possible. In any case, Russia does not want and will not want to fight in the Arctic because of the, the conditions there, which means that they want to remove tension away from in turn, the pressure on the North Atlantic sea line of communication and ultimately on the, the Baltic Sea itself, which is a major problem for NATO and its allies. And the final caveat I want to point out is that, is that Russia's posture is highly defensive in nature. Perimeter control, bastion defense, it is very highly defensive in terms of the posture. Yet, it's not because your, your posture is defensive that your intentions are necessarily defensive. And the capability that Russia has been deploying in, the in a way is not necessary for purely defensive purposes, which is sort of a conundrum that Russia does, is, is completely overlooking and does not want to address. In terms of the capabilities themselves, uh, they remain so far, except for the Kola Peninsula, more eyes and ears than muscle. The Kola Peninsula has been hardened with a powerful multilayer defense and coastal defense capability and several uh, sea denial UK gap and therefore the North Atlantic. But elsewhere, apart from the Kola Peninsula, I don't think we should overestimate Russian um, deployments for several reasons that I will, I will be happy to address in the Q&A. Um, so I, I will stop there because it's already been five minutes and I'll be happy to discuss in further detail during the Q&A the force, uh, force structure and capabilities and the white matters for us in a way, white matters for NATO, for the US and what should the Western response be. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matthew. Um, I, I, I note that, at least for me, uh, every minute or so we would lose about five seconds of what we were saying, sometimes at critical moments. So uh, you may get some uh, questions about clarifying and, and oh, wow. you know, okay. a yeah. more, more reliable way of calling in in the meantime while we go to the other speakers. You might try yeah. that. Um, Katerina, I want to go to you next, uh, also calling us uh, from London, but presumably uh, at a suitable social distance uh, from anybody else, probably in your home. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, Katerina is a, a policy fellow at the European Leadership Network. Uh, she recently completed a fellowship at the Kennan Institute, um, a George F. Kennan fellowship, and her research uh, includes Russia-West relations, security challenges in the shared neighborhood, uh, conflict prevention in the context of hybrid and asymmetric threats, uh, electoral information, uh, interference and information operations, and I would note also a, a personal uh, pet favorite topic of mine, the role of the OSCE in all of this. Um, Katerina, the floor is yours, uh, five minutes, and I just want to remind everybody uh, who wants to ask a question, press star one on your phone, please. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me. I'm very happy to be part of the panel and to share some of the things I have learned uh, while being a George F. Kennan Fellow, uh, while visiting Alaska, uh, and through interaction with other speakers uh, who are also on the panel today. So I would like to start by <clears throat> elaborating on uh, the key priorities uh, that Mathieu has uh, mentioned, or the reasons behind Russia's military expansion uh, in the Arctic. Uh, because militarization is never a goal in itself, but comes with, often comes with other national interests. So as Matthew has mentioned, so from the strategic military point of view, uh, the growing military presence um, ensures the survival of strategic submarines uh, and their sanctuaries or the bastion in the north. Uh, and this second strike capability is critical uh, in Russian thinking. Um, from the economic point of view, um, Russian military buildup can be understood uh, as a measure to make the Northern Sea Route safe and commercially viable. Uh, in fact, in 2014, uh, the military was named the protector of natural resources. Um, and as a rule, if shipping lanes are economically interesting, um, you want to safeguard them militarily. Uh, and I could think about the US military presence uh, in the Strait of Hormuz, uh, where the, shipping, the uninterrupt, uninterrupted shipping lanes are important for the American interests as well as for the interests of the European allies. Uh, and the third um, priority or the reason behind Russia's military expansion that 
I think it's worth men mentioning, uh, is a, a way in which uh, Russia can use the military presence um, to address some of the development challenges in the Arctic. Russia at the moment has the largest Arctic population, and since 2000, uh, this population has declined by around 15%. And um, with the one exception of the Yamalo-Nenetsk Autonomous District, all of Russia's polar regions are expected uh, to continue to experience a demographic decline. Um, and military has always been the backbone of Arctic development. Um, it could be that a part of the federal defense funds um, are directed towards regional development of Russia's Arctic. Um, and we can, we can think about um, Germany, how entire villages depend on U.S. military presence, or the extent to which the Army and Air Force uh, provides economic boost to places like Fairbanks, Fairbanks in Alaska. And when reading the newly published uh, Arctic strategy, uh, which was signed by President uh, Putin in, March, in the beginning of March, we can see that Russia uh, really considers the biggest challenge uh, to be domestic, to its Arctic development to be domestic rather than foreign. So one of the main priorities uh, up till 2035 will be to improve the livelihoods of Russian citizens and to provide incentives to grow the Arctic population. And so some of these communities could be built alongside military outposts. Uh, the second point I want to make is um, that we often compare Russia's military buildup to the 1990s levels, when Russia's armed forces were seriously degraded following the collapse of the USSR. But when we compare them with the Soviet levels, the overall military presence and activities um, are modest in scale. And so I think that we might be over-reading the degree of militarization today. So the military starting started returning to the Arctic in 2007-2008, so we have to ask ourselves, is it possible that we denied it for years in a way and now take it to, to an extreme in our discussions and in the way the situation is portrayed in the media? And um, even though, as also Mathieu has mentioned, uh, even though these developments are defensive in nature, and are taking place only on Russian territory. Uh, the matter of bigger concern today are maneuvers that are carried beyond Russia's territory. Um, these include GPS jamming, um, which was reported during the Trident Juncture exercise, anti-NATO disinformation campaigns, air and submarine incursions, or recent live fire, live fire testing exercises. Um, so these instances uh, raise concern um, about Russia's intentions. And I would agree with Mathieu's uh, analysis that um, there isn't a real conflict potential in the region at this very moment. Um, so it wouldn't be a, a direct military conflict because simply conflict is bad for business. And if Russia sure. wants the Northern Sea Route to be commercially viable, it is in the country's interest to make sure that it remains a low-tension area. And uh, even though this conflict potential is low, uh, we could see military spillover effects, uh, misunderstandings or misinterpretation of actions, which could have a potential of escalation. Um, I think I'm going to stop there, because um, I think I ran out of time, but I'll be happy to uh, elaborate on some of these points in the Q&A. Thank you very much, Katerina, and uh, thank you both for your assiduous observance of uh, the time limits. We'll, we'll have plenty of time for Q&A, which is great. Um, turning to uh, my friend and colleague, Michael Kaufman, uh, here in Virginia. Um, he is director of the Russia Studies Program at CNA Corporation, as well as a global fellow at the Kennan Institute of the Wilson Center. Um, his research focuses on Russia and the former Soviet Union, specializing in the Russian Armed Forces, uh, Russian military thought and strategy, and if you read or write or work on any of those topics, you have no doubt uh, encountered the many uh, brilliant insights of Michael Kaufman. Michael. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it, and uh, thanks for hosting us to the Wilson Center. 
I'm going to make a few points uh, about both the military situation, but more specifically Russian strategy and what's driving some of this behavior that I hope will be complementary to the great comments by Matthew and Katerina here. Um, I think probably the most uh, accurate way to look at the space is securitization. While, while that should potentially make us unhappy and apprehensive, the aspect of Russian thinking that's driving them towards militarization for the Arctic probably is if anything more beneficial for us because it's incredibly expensive. It is fundamentally driven by specific threat perceptions um, and it diverts considerable amount of military resources from other military districts that are actually of much higher concern from my point of view to the West. Uh, first and foremost, a lot of the investment that is actually new in military infrastructure in the Arctic is fundamentally driven by a desire to solve problems of airspace defense to this early warning and situational awareness. Um, United States and Russia are actually separated by a very small amount of uh, ballistic missile flight time that goes on a transpolar trajectory over the Arctic. But more importantly, uh, there's always been a lingering Russian concern about U.S. mass airspace attack. And in fact, before I get to the maritime domain, that's actually been the primary security concern that drives the return of Russian bases in the Arctic, because if you look at what they actually are, they are fundamentally a network of radar pickets with short-range air defense around them, and these are essentially a network of early warning systems against U.S. airspace attack or potential mass cruise missile attacks. And if you think that this is um, not generated by realistic threat perceptions, you are quite wrong because the United States does indeed conduct strategic bomber patrols with long-range cruise missiles, and you bet on transpolar trajectories. Um, turning to the maritime domain, it, similar problem emerged in terms of situational awareness, right? Concern about U.S. cruise missile launch from submarines in the high north, and the potential that as the Arctic continues to melt and deteriorate, that there will be U.S. ballistic missile-capable ships that will deploy in the high north along that transpolar flight trajectory in the future some years from now. And, of course, we're not necessarily talking about the current security environment. It takes a lot of time and energy and money to invest in infrastructure in the Arctic. And so, of course, defense strategists think about what the security environment is going to look like 20, 30 years from now and the investing capability now for that a certain future, right? And so there's a rough mental map from the Russian perspective of how they would like to keep certain U.S. platforms and capabilities away, maybe to within 1,500 nautical miles or so. Um, next, the bastion concept. We talked about it quite a bit, the sort of protective maritime region. It absolutely endures, although its practicality and necessity, in my personal view, um, has been dramatically reduced. The reality is that uh, Russian ballistic missile uh, submarines as a force are a tiny fraction of the force that the Soviet Union originally deployed there. And most importantly, the Navy that used to exist to actually protect the so-called protected maritime region doesn't really exist anymore. And finally, Russian ballistic missile uh, submarines, even according to official figures, do not do heel-to-toe patrols, plus the road mobile sort of ICBM force forms an important leg of the second strike capability. But these are analytical, practical considerations, and of course we know a lot of procurement and defense military strategy is not necessarily driven by those. But a lot of the Russian naval investment is there to actually defend the maritime approaches and littoral, littorals, and that is driven by maritime strategy aimed at sea control and what Russians consider to be the near-sea zone. Think about that maybe within 500 nautical miles or so of the Kola Peninsula, and then project sea denial contest of space in the far sea zone, and that's the Norwegian Sea all the way out to the GI-UK gap, right, between uh, England and uh, Iceland. Um, and the Russian dream was to be able to militarily create blocking zones to keep strategic U.S. forces from being able to deploy at a certain range and from essentially being able to strike against the Russian homeland with long-range conventional missiles. And I'll, I'll close out on two final brief points. One, um, economic interests also play heavily, of course, in the Russian thinking on this, and you can read this in the 2015 Maritime Strategy. You can read this in the recently released Arctic Strategy uh, through 2035. And the Russian intent behind the uh, securitization of space to create toll gates and checkpoints, and a lot of it is about control a lot more than militarization, right? And the Russian goal is to make sure that states that wish to transit this area or exploit resources in this area, have to nullify, consult, and get Russian agreement before doing so. And, of course, one area that will continue to be a dispute is the consistent statements in Russian official documents that they see the Northern Sea Route as fundamentally being a national transport artery as opposed to some sort of international waterway, right? And so this remains to be a factor that drives some Russian thinking, 
So at the end of the day, somehow in the future, the Arctic will be an area of competition over maritime resources. And of course, Russia wants to make sure that, you know, it is able to secure that space. Um, I'd like to close on this. I, I suspect I've already used up the five minutes of my time, but Matt so generously allotted. Uh, thank you, Michael. I, uh, th there's a lot to pick up on there, but um, I want to give my colleague, Mike Sprague, a chance to speak from the perspective of precisely uh, that uh, shortened flight time uh, up there in Fairbanks, Alaska. Uh, Mike uh, is the director of both the Wilson Center's Global Risk and Resilience Program and the Polar Institute. Um, he's spent most of his life living in and exploring Alaska and the Arctic. Uh, his training is as a geographer of polar regions um, and uh, was a Fulbright scholar uh, with a focus on the policy implications of changing Arctic and Antarctic. Uh, Mike, since uh, Fairbanks has already been mentioned by name, uh, maybe you can give us an on-the-ground sense of what all of this feels, uh, uh, feels like from the neighborhood. Yeah, Matt, thank you very much, and thanks for the partnership between Ken and, and the Polar Institute. And, and my thanks to and appreciation for Matthew, uh, Katharina, and Michael, three outstanding scholars with great insight, and know that I was taking notes uh, as you were speaking. So, Matt, let me uh, maybe I'll do the Alaska component, and then maybe back in and highlight a few things our colleagues have mentioned, <clears throat> and then from there we can we can pick up in the Q and A. But thank you for the opportunity. Indeed, um, I have. Um, noted, uh, Matthew, in your paper and all the comments of our speakers, uh, what I have previously talked about in other areas, which is we should not consider the bastion that we talk about as a, a separate entity or the northern sea route or Russia's far east. Rather, we should look at this discussion, this issue, this dynamic from the bastion to the bearing. Um, I've used this in other, in other entities, including uh, written documents. But when you look at the expansiveness, the maybe 5,000 kilometers expanse of the Russian, Russian Arctic coastline, you can't help but be driven by from the bastion to the bearing. So from the bearing perspective, uh, that's a stone's throw from Alaska, including uh, Russia's new uh, capabilities and assets on Wrangell Island. Um, our Russian colleagues in private and in public have both noted that, uh, you know, maybe 20, 30 miles from my very home where I'm talking to you from, uh, will be bedded down here in another month, the F-35s, the most advanced fighters on the planet. Uh, that has been noted in, in dialogues with our Russian colleagues, especially from the defense areas. They've also noted that uh, perhaps 100 miles from my home is the missile defense. Uh, they've noted that. Now, that both has stands for the Russia posture, but also North Korea and, and looking at the Indo-Pacific relation to, to the Arctic as well. But that very much is a dynamic here in the state uh, the state that makes the United States an Arctic nation. There's a lot of discussion about the, connect, the connection between the Indo-Pacific, the North Pacific, and Alaska, uh, the capacities that are in Anchorage through the Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson uh, facility. So very much you see an increase in activity here and the call for uh, FONOPS in the Arctic by uh, Alaska Senator Dan Sullivan. Um, and that has raised flags in both private and public settings with our Russian colleagues. Uh, now, what those FONOPs may look like, who knows? But you see a narrative, and when we speak to our Russian colleagues, the following comes up. F-35s in Fairbanks, missile defense at Fort Greeley, uh, the call from a senator, senators for more FONOPs in the Arctic and what that might look like, the call for some either seasonal or permanent Navy base in Alaska, um, more activity with allies in the state because of the airspace Alaska provides to allies. Um, when you speak to our Russian colleagues, they view those um, and they counter the argument and the dynamic that was just noted, which is these increased new facilities along the Northern Sea Route and Russia's Arctic coastline, they will counter with the narrative that I just went through. So when you say to, when I have talked to our Russian colleagues about the quote-unquote buildup, uh, that has been a counter. Uh, they also counter with the connection with NATO. The activities that NATO has conducted in the Arctic, Trident Juncture, as Katarina has noted, even though they weren't technically in the Arctic, that's still a stone's throw from the Arctic. So they, they see that the bastion to the bearing as being locked in, closed in, being squeezed from the United States, from the Alaska side, NATO from the European side, uh, hence more probing flights, uh, more discussions about um, 
capabilities, long-term capabilities, including I think Katharina was uh, alluding to some some just recent flights that went from Russian air bases uh, along Scandinavia down and around UK Gap all the way to Spain and back in one sortie. Uh, that's significant, and some believe that some of those uh, flights are to figure out what the contours or radar capacity of NATO might be. So, again, the bastion to the bearing, um, this bubble seems to be, if you're from the Russian perspective and speaking to our colleagues there, they see uh, bookends. And even though it's not perhaps offensive only, as, as Michael rightly noted, this idea of keeping tabs on having capacity for understanding better what the U.S. and NATO might or might not be doing in the Russian Arctic, uh, in the Arctic writ large, is a significant concern to our Russian colleagues. Katarina brought up, and I wanted to highlight this, the issue of the Northern Sea Route. And I viewed this as a layer cake. Right? You have the incredible importance of the Russian Arctic to the Russian GDP and their exports. You see an overlay of Russian bases, as Michael noted, uh, the activity along the Northern Sea Route and Chinese investment there. And then the militarization of the islands north of that, from Franz Josef Land to Wrangel, Wrangel Island. So you have a layer cake of economic development, so important to the Russians, being perhaps protected by a layer of, of uh, security assets that are not only to lay claim. I mean, the signaling has been quite clear how they view that northern sea route. They would also like to see it as an international commerce, but a national asset. Uh, so this, this dynamic is, is quite, it's evolving quickly. There's knowns and unknowns, but they very much see um, the Arctic as the path through the future. And finally, I'll leave it with uh, reference to uh, the um, new Arctic policy signed just three weeks ago. The overlap between each of our scholars on this line and what's in the Russian uh, Arctic policy, uh, there are overlaps everywhere. There is a balance in that document, uh, in the document between social responsibility, economic development, the need for infrastructure, what almost every Arctic state is saying, and the absolute palpable uh, narrative about what NATO is doing, protecting their sovereign right, if you're from the Russian Federation, and projecting the fact that they can support and secure and defend themselves, if need be, and their allies. And I think there we're highlighting China's incredible importance to the Russian Arctic future investment there. So from Alaska to Romansk and beyond, um, an interesting dynamic and probably um, emblematic of this new north that we're all watching unfold before us. Matt, I'll leave it there and, and just uh, follow up as needed. Many thanks, Mike. Um, I want to remind everybody again, uh, star one on your phone uh, to be put into the question queue. I'm going to start because I feel like we have gotten um, quite a lot of depth in some of the same areas, right? What is the shape of Russia's investments, Russia's deployments, what may be their motivation and the perceptions, and then obviously a little bit on what the United States and, and maybe even a little bit on what allies are doing. But I want to invite uh, anybody who wants to tackle this, uh, I may start with Matthew uh, just uh, also to test that his connection's working with us again. Uh, if you can essentially define the the outer bounds of what Russia's actually doing uh, with two questions. One is, to what extent is what we are seeing something that any country in Russia's geographic position would do if it could afford to do so. And the fact that they couldn't afford it in the 1990s until, let's say, the last decade and a half is the only reason they're playing catch-up now on one end. But then on the other end, to what extent is this a game of perceptions where the Russians feel they have to do things because of what the United States or NATO is doing, but were the United States or NATO not to do those things, then the Russians would also stop. In other words, how much of this is natural trajectory uh, for a country located as Russia is, positioned in every sense, and, and how much of this is a response to what's going on, or is it something different altogether? Matthew, do you want to take a stab at that? Sure, yes. Thank you very much, Matt. I'll, uh, I'll try to speak slowly and to you know, space up my, uh, space you, you out my words. 
Good, excellent. So would any country do that in, in this position? No, because, you know, it is unacceptable for Russia to be allowed to um, jam entire segments of civilian airspace during Trident Juncture, for instance. This goes way beyond acceptable, you know, peacetime, interstate-friendly or not competition. You know, it is unacceptable that Russia is allowed to simulate air attack formations on the Vardovni Dmitry installation in northern Norway, for instance. So in as much as Russia is playing catch-up in the Arctic because it was left to rot in the 90s, of course, in terms of presence, or very presence, um, it goes way beyond this catch-up logic. You know, most of the capabilities they are developing here are, of course, for dual-use purpose. A lot serves for radar coverage, for search and rescue operation, for maritime domain awareness. But it goes way beyond purely defensive military capabilities. There is a lot of offensive stuff that is placed out there. There is systematic training of Russian armed forces under Arctic conditions. Most of the VDV, the airborne troops, have been already or are about to uh, be uh, trained to Arctic conditions. Most of the elements of the Arctic Brigade, the sort of piecemeal of the uh, Russian Arctic troops, have been deployed to Syria to have genuine combat experience. And there's a dedicated force structure now with a sort of new military district, with the, uh, the North Military District. And most of Russia's military systems deployed in the Arctic are very much Arctic-specific. They've been hardened in terms of uh, components to Arctic conditions. So it goes way beyond, in a way, you know, just the, the simple reappropriation of its own space to serve dual-use purposes, mostly for the civilian, uh, the civilian pathways through the NSR, the Northern Sea Routes, or economic development for local population. So is it a game of perception only? Then yes and no, because once again, the Arctic is not different than any other areas of operation. And Russia is feeding the same security dilemma and sense of inferiority they have towards NATO and the West in general. What they have, you know, intrinsically in terms of this um, security dilemma, they do have as well uh, in the Arctic. So if, if the game of perception is here, then it's not Arctic-specific and it has nothing to do with the Arctic, but only the sort of tip of the iceberg, if I can say so, of the wider self-perception that Russia has in terms of its own, um, its own, its own bastion, in a way. You know, Michael Kaufman, you write a lot about <clears throat> perceptions and counter-perceptions uh, in Russian thinking. Uh, could I invite you just to, to quickly comment on this, and then I, I promise I'm going to go to the questioners that we have in the queue. Sure, and I appreciate the opportunity, Matt. I mean, first, I'd say that we probably would have a very different perception of this if uh, the Soviet military that Russia had inherited was not allowed to almost completely collapse in the 1990s um, through several partial reform efforts and underfunding. And so there is naturally this perception of a massive militarization in the Arctic. The, the truth is that um, qualitatively it's different and it's driven by a fairly different perception of the threat environment from the Russian side than much of it was uh, by the Soviet Union during the Cold War. So the Soviet Union used the Arctic as forward staging basis for strategic bomber aviation to launch nuclear attacks on the United States. Given the advancement of technology, Russia no longer needs to do that in order to fulfill that mission. So much of what is in the Arctic that's new, as opposed to Soviet defensive concepts like the Bastion that we talked about going back to the 1970s, right, which haven't changed, we're just talking about it again because we're rediscovering the Russian military in the last five, six years. The things that are new are driven by these other new threat perceptions, and, and they are not necessarily a response at all to U.S. or NATO behavior. I mean, that's not how defense planners do things. That's not how defense strategists do things. They do things based on capability and how they observe to see the United, how they observe the U.S. way of war, right? Because intent can always change, but capability is there. And, in fact, they're actually fairly late in trying to shore up this aspect of Russian airspace defense and getting situational awareness up in the Arctic, right? Um, as far as how much of it is defensive and offensive, you know, um, those more often than not tend to be political characterizations. A lot of things are sort of what you choose to make of them and the context that they're perceived to be in. I actually think that most offensive capabilities that Russia is deploying are probably more in the Eastern military district, and that's what worries um, those who uh, live and deal with security for the United States in Alaska. But the fascinating part about that is that the Eastern Military District is distinct and very different from the sort of uh, the Northern Fleet, which has command of much of what we typically look at. You know, essentially the Northern Fleet Joint Strategic Command. Um, 
as far as exercises and these reactions, Matt, you know, I'll close on this point of sort of we professionally follow Trijan Junction, obviously, with tend of area, tending towards area of expertise in maritime space coming from the Center for Naval Analysis. Um, I would say that we are, writ large, in a confrontation. We are in an adversarial relationship. Russia and the Russian military certainly are going to do things and have risk tolerance that we would not do, but we need to own the realities of this relationship and not pretend we're friends and that all these activities that are taking place are taking place out of context, whether it's trying to sure, or whether it's Russian testing and intentional jamming with electronic warfare systems, right? But it needs to be properly framed. Great, great, great points, Mike. Um, I, and I, thank you both. I, I, yes, yes, go ahead, Katerina. Hi, I'd like to just briefly, uh, in a few words, enter the second question, if I may. Uh, to what extent is this a way of responding to what is going on? Uh, so uh, when the remilitarization had started in 2007 and 2008, it was because the nuclear and conventional forces badly needed modernization to be able to meet new challenges. And this uh, remilitarization was not Arctic-specific, but was whole of Russia. So uh, if it's a response to something, it's a response to the shortcomings Russia has perceived, let's say, uh, in Georgia in 2008 um, and elsewhere. But when I was uh, doing research uh, at the Kennan Institute and when I was reading some articles written by Russian authors, I came across an argument where uh, they stated that Russia didn't start remilitarizing until 2007 and 2008, but the cold response exercises have already been running since 2006, where when Russia was effectively demilitarized. So we could also ask ourselves uh, to what extent Russia felt threatened, how did it perceive those exercises at the time? Thank you, Katerina. I want to go right to the queue, having uh, exhausted my moderator's uh, prerogative early in our conversation. Uh, Diana Spencer, uh, please go ahead, your question. I think it was Mike who mentioned Chinese investment uh, in the area, and I'm wondering how, what, what kind of investment and, and how is Russia addressing this? Great. Important question. I had China in all caps in my notes, so thank you, Diana. Uh, Mike Sprague, that was you, right? It was. Thank you, and thank you, Diana. So, um, you know, the, the significant investment made by China, tens of billions of dollars uh, in Russia's Yamal Peninsula complex, the Sabeta plant, that's significant LNG capacity there. That plant will pull out just Sabeta 1. There's multiple complexes being built along the entire Northern Sea Route. But China has afforded Russia much-needed finance, tens of billions of dollars, to just in that one plant, not only build it but expand it and guarantee purchase of that LNG, which has done a number of things. A, it has allowed President Putin to absorb uh, foreign investment. Two, it's allowed for a critical resource for that country to be tapped into and, and monetized. Three, uh, it has uh, allowed the internationalization of the Northern Sea Route. Traditionally, it has served that country for decades and decades and decades internally, but it has also played out that it is actually, depending on the commodity prices, which aren't too good to these days, proven the point that the Northern Sea Route could be an alternative for you know, expedited shipping from the Amal Peninsula along the Northern Sea Route down the Bering Strait into Chinese markets and Asian markets. So it has been significant. Now, Total and other oil companies have invested as well, but Chinese investment there has been significant. Also, uh, it, the spirit of Siberia, I mean, thousand kilometer plus, thousands of kilometers plus oil pipeline, gas pipeline between Russia and China. So there's been significant investment as part of the One Belt, One Road concept from China into Russia that has allowed China to diversify its sources, but also has allowed President Putin to absorb that income and tap the resource. Again, as I've said, I think a lot of the Russian future goes through or comes from the Arctic. Thank you. Great. Th thanks very much, Mike. Um, I want to go to the next question uh, from John Grady, please. Question would Sir? be, 
capabilities that offensive and defensive that the Russians have added? The question is, uh, which capabilities, offensive and defensive, have they added? Yes. Uh, Matthew's uh, conversation broke up at that point. Ah, okay. Well, why don't we go to why don't we go to Matthew then, if we can? Go ahead. Yep. All right. So, in terms of if you if you look at you know the, um, the defensive offensive debate on you know what is offensive and defensive these days, you know by a flick of a button, a defensive system can be turned into something offensive, right? So it's um, it's sort of a it's sort of a for me that the, the difference is very very moot when it comes to specifically in this environment when it's all about maritime domain awareness and um, increased uh, eyes and ears uh, across the board. So in terms of capabilities, you know, there's a swath of things that Russia uh, has been doing, and I can only encourage you to read my report. A bit of self-publicity is good. Um, on land, the mainstay of Russia's permanent presence is the, uh, the swath of um, military bases, airfields, and which mostly serve for search and rescue capabilities and military logistics and resupplying. So it's a sort of disparate network of airfields and bases along the Arctic zone of the Russian Federation. In the Kolos Peninsula, more specifically, the, um, the region has been hardened by a powerful and multi-layered um, air defense and coastal defense capabilities um, that are adapted specifically to Arctic conditions. They have developed, you know, the, they deployed already in famous F-400, S-400s and S-300s uh, defense systems, but also a swath of different um, anti-ship cruise missile systems and lead attack cruise missile systems, um, also layered with electronic magnetic warfare and domain awareness capabilities. So this much has been hardened to fit the logic of the bastion. Um, the, nor the Northern Fleet has also been slowly recapitalizing for the past few years, and uh, it's not very much Arctic-specific because the, the Northern Fleet has traditionally been serving as a sort of force multiplier for the fleets. And it's not really Arctic-specific in the sense that very few systems in the Northern Fleet are actually Arctic-capable. To date, they only have one um, active uh, icebreaker, the uh, Ilya Muranets, that was filled in uh, 2018. But they are looking into developing more of these uh, ice class vessels. Uh, but they definitely have been increasing the uh, operational tempo and procurement for the Northern Fleet um, in, uh, in that logic, which serves to, put, to defend the Kola Peninsula, to ensure access to the North Atlantic, but also to protect uh, the Northern Sea Route, as Katarina mentioned. Thanks. Great. Uh, thank you, Matthew. I want to keep the questions coming in the interest of time. Uh, next, I want to go to Ambassador Ken Yalowitz. Uh Ken, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, I want, thank you. It's been very interesting. I just wanted to focus on something that only has been mentioned tangentially, um, and that is the critical importance of the North uh, to Russia's economic future, and particularly, you know, to uh, oil and gas exports. Um, you know, they have argued at times, you know, that the West has uh, nefarious aims to take control of these things, and Given, you know, the critical importance of those assets, uh, you know, to the Russian economic future, uh, is what they're doing, you know, totally, you know, beyond the realm of rationality. Uh, you know, be, sure, COLA is important and it has to be protected. But when you're looking at the economic future of your country, uh, aren't you going to take a lot of steps, you know, to be sure it's well defended? Okay, so Ken, if I yeah. understand you correctly, you're, you're asking if uh, everything that's been described is actually justified by the economic importance and not the, the converse, which would be that turning it into a contested military space might be, might be bad for trade, for example. Yeah, and, and, and just to further that point, you know, sure they would like to extend the boundaries, but they're playing by the rules of the game under the law of the sea convention, uh, you know, they're not contesting who owns what where. Uh, they did agree on the Barents Sea Division, you know, with the Norwegians. I'm not trying to argue right. that what they're doing is totally benign. I'm simply asking for perspective. Uh, and also in light of what Mike Sprague mentioned about right. the bombers and missile defenses, you know, that we are putting in place, uh, you know, in Alaska. 
Great. No, very, very helpful. I was waiting for someone to bring in Law of the Sea as well. So I think I heard, uh, was that uh, Mike, Michael Kaufman jumping in? or It was Mike Sprague agreeing with Ken Yellowish. Mike Sprague, please. Go, yeah. go ahead. Okay. <laughs> well, hi, Ken. It's great to hear hear you. Um, I agree. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're parsing this. Uh, there's all sorts of motives, and it's hard to have a monolithic motive for any of the countries. But uh, to me, it's parts of this are just simply not irrational. If any of us were the president of a nation that had a vast coastline and vast natural resources as a significant component of their economic engine, uh, this is not irrational to bolster infrastructure, to protect that infrastructure with you know national military assets, get that. Uh, that could be dual use for uh, search and rescue, oil spill response. So a lot of this, if you parse it, is not irrational. We we agree on that. And and one can see why. It's that layer cake that I talked about before, and, and you and I have discussed it in, in quite some detail. Um, I think what a lot of people are trying to get a handle on, perhaps, is is making sure that we narrate correctly and trying to guess what these motives are because there is a bit of cloud between capacity defense offense mm-hmm. and then capacity versus protecting a nation's assets. I mean, we do that. Uh, all good nations protect their assets and their interests. The question is what other motives lie within that uh, protecting the nation's assets, interests, and economic development. So I think a lot of this is not irrational. It's rather quite rational. Our question is trying to get a handle on are there other you know, motives like any other nation in terms of projecting force, influencing areas um, outside of their national boundaries and, and that kind of thing. So, Ken, long long answer to a short question, but um, I agree that a lot of this is rational and actually is in the self-interest of any government to do so. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Matthew, here, if I can add, sorry, yeah. you're just uh, talking about the layer cake and, and economic uh, rationality. The, the, the Arctic since the mid-2000s is, 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 has become a sort of new cake for the elite uh, to, to divide, you know, a sort of new pie to extract money from and to go into all these vested interests and corrupt schemes that we all know and love from Russia and the Russian leadership. And what is often overlooked is the, the lobbying function of the Arctic because it is highly centralized and it is under the direct command or sort of manual control of President Putin himself. He is using the Arctic as a sort of personal springboard as well. Uh, for his own legacy and there's a lot of attention and therefore there's a lot of money to be milked from the central government and therefore you have a lot of lobbies who try to get the leadership's attention when it comes to developing the Arctic in this or that way. So the military is lobbying heavily for recapitalization of its assets. Uh, Rosatom and Rosatom Flot has been heavily lobbying for the creation of new fleets or icebreakers, for instance. Local governors are also lobbying for more money for local developments with less uh, success than the military or Rosatom. But this is also very important in terms of sharing the cake of this new sort of, new sort of, yes, new sort of cake of, uh, of Arctic development. Uh, I want to go back to the queue, uh, and TJ Johnson is next, please. <laughs> Hi, how's it going? Right. And thank you to all the uh, – hey, hello? Yes, we're good. Go, go ahead, okay. TJ, please. Awesome. Uh, so this conversation has been incredible. I, I have a question with regards to kind of current macroeconomic uh, situation. Uh, so right now Russia is dealing with a couple things, right? So they're dealing with the global COVID-19 thing, and they're also dealing with an oil war with uh, Saudi Arabia. On this, I see two extremes uh, on this side. So either – its macroeconomic realities will prevent it from aligning its Arctic ambitions with its budget. The other, that Russia will further development at kind of all costs. From from the panel, do you, you guys think it's more likely, a, like a likely global recession will reduce Russian uh, ability to enact its Arctic ambitions or to accelerate uh, these uh, tensions between Russia and then, like U.S.-NATO? Great question. Uh, both the global recession aspect and what happens uh, to Russia's state budget within estimates I've seen is like half a year, or maybe a year, if oil prices stay where they are. Uh, who wants to tackle that one? I, I could give it a go. Please. So, because uh, I've been I've been uh, trying to look 
uh, into the implication of COVID and uh, plummeting oil prices. And I think what this shows is that on the one hand, we have a very ambitious plans for resource extraction in the Arctic, but at the same time, there are geoeconomic realities that are beyond Russia's control and that it will be difficult for the regime, for the government to reconcile these domestic political ambitions and international uncertainties. Uh, so there will be sectors that will be affected, but I also don't think that uh, the military will be affected per se. Uh, it's something we have seen with the 2014 sanctions. Uh, they did not affect military budgets, uh, or not uh, to my knowledge. So there will be sectors uh, affected. Uh, the plans may not be realized by 2035. Well, let's see, uh, but the timeline will be longer, definitely. You know, I'm, I'm reminded here of a point that I've read uh, in Michael Kaufman's writing before that we often forget how much Russia acquires in terms of its military-industrial complex domestically, which is essentially, therefore, uh, insulated from the global economy. Uh, Michael, I suppose that's true in this case as well. Yeah, actually, historically, when there have been oil price shocks or real recessions, that has not affected defense spending at all. In fact, Probably the worst case, if we look at 2014, 2015, Russian defense spending and modernization and procurement only went up during that time period. Uh, the truth, from, at least from my perspective, is that if this was going to happen to Russia, now is probably the best time in terms of relatively in the best position when we look at the at, um, foreign exchange international reserves, when we look at the oil price per barrel requirement for the budget, $40, and the ability to basically run a deficit and to handle this for quite some time. We forget how resilient and how enduring Russia is. Whether or not this game and the oil price war between them, Saudi Arabia, and us uh, pans out ultimately in their favor is highly debatable, but I think the military is fairly well insulated from that and they have plenty of money to sustain the defense spending. On the economic side, I'll briefly comment on that, that probably one of Russia's principal interests in the Arctic, of course, is um, uh, Yamal Peninsula and LNG exports via Novatech. And that this is sort of always seen as one of the sort of futures of, of uh, future of more efficient uh, energy extraction on the market for Russia. I think one of the challenges in the current environment in terms of energy prices and what's happening, whether there was, even if you take the price war out of this, right, and just assume that there was going to be a degree of a recession and much lower demand due to the impact of COVID-19, is that naturally it suppresses a lot of the actual business and market rationale for the investment and extraction that's very expensive that's taking place in the Arctic. But there's the other side of it that Matthew rightly pointed to, which is this is state-driven as part of a strategy, and that strategy has a lot of little strains uh, on it that sort of pulls lots of business enterprises and a whole host of rent-seeking associated with it, whereby the Arctic vision is part of the state extending its writ to that uh, last remaining frontier of the country and also is a giant wealth transfer mechanism, which takes money out of the budget and distributes it amongst all these other people. Um, thanks, Michael. I want to try to get at least one more question from the queue. Uh, I'm, I'm finding out if we can run over just a little bit here. Uh, Keith Steinbaugh, please. Uh, a question for Matthew. You mentioned VDV, and I think you've kind of already touched on this in some of your later things. Do you view VDV training in the Arctic as true power projection, or is it more a ploy by General Shamanov and now General Serdukov to try to grab more of the defense budget by tacking the word Arctic onto their operations? Um, it's a really good point, and yes, there's a little bit of both. There's, you know, there's this um, intra-sectorial uh, intra competition for money and attention between the, uh, the big lobbies in, in the military, and there's also internal competition inside the Russian armed forces and the military industry to get Arctic stuff. You know, if you if you, if you come up with an Arctic training capability or an Arctic hardened system, then you're almost likely to get funding these days. Um, so mo most of the air assault units have been, you know, have reportedly undergone Arctic training because they they need to be um, they need to be ready for any sort of an of environment. And since Russia is placing more emphasis and more focus on spearhead operations and reconnaissance and force operations, and the Vedavea is uh, this sort of spearhead for these movements. And therefore, come what may, uh, the Russian armed forces should move in force in the, in the Arctic zone of the Russian Federation for defensive purposes. And yes, the Vedavea would have to be 
uh, deployed there and now need to be um, acquainted with the environment. So if, if you look okay. at the training cycles uh, very, very quickly, it's just that it, it, it looks once again uh, at rapid reaction deployments, coastal assault landings, amphibious assault operations that look like Russia really wants to push the fight away once again from the Arctic environment towards the North Atlantic and then putting the pressure away from the Russian territory. But this, this is not Arctic-specific once again. Okay. Uh, back to the queue. Shannon Plout, please. Hey, uh, good afternoon. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, thank everyone on the panel uh, uh, for your time. Um, a quick, um, not so much a uh, uh, question is in two parts. Uh, uh, first part, uh, uh, just uh, uh, to clarify, um, uh, with regards to the Eastern Military District and, you know, the positioning, it was discussed earlier, the positioning of the uh, um, uh, F-35 in Alaska and the buildup of, um, uh, you know, U.S. military resources and allied training going on in that, um, uh, you know, in the vicinity of the Bering Sea in Northern Pacific. Uh, if you could just clarify, um, does, uh, from the Russian viewpoint, do they view that area um, to be, um, as much of a, I guess, for lack of a better term, a, a threat or aggression from the U.S. as equally as they do uh, on their western border uh, from NATO and U.S. involvement uh, uh, in, in the European theater. Uh, do they view those equally? And if so, could we potentially see a, a, a buildup in the future within the Eastern Military District of um, manning, training, and equipping uh, uh, those forces uh, uh, sometime in the future? Uh, okay. Okay, great. Uh, we're short on time. Uh, who wants to tackle that when, in maybe like a minute? Matt, this is Mike. Maybe I'll give it a shot. Um, in, in my understanding, they do not view those equally. There's a lot more cooperation on the Bering side, the Far East, Alaska, a lot more cooperation so rooted in search and rescue, Bering Strait agreements on shipping, uh, cognizant of the fact of capacity and, and, and those kind of things. When you compare that to the uh, Western side, uh, to the Bastion, the relationship with NATO, Norway, uh, the GIUK gap, SLOC, other things, they see that as far more uh, uh, concerning than, than what's happening in Alaska at this point. They're certainly cognizant of the fact of the assets up here, and we're cognizant of the fact of the assets uh, on the Bering side. But uh, they're, not, they're not equal. It's far more weighted, in my opinion, on the Kola Peninsula side and the Bastion versus the Bering side. Okay, I, I want to go to John Baker. I know you've been uh, waiting in the queue, please. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I just wanted to uh, thank the speakers and also ask them a question, uh, something a little, little bit more specific about the uh, Svalbard uh, archipelago and the uh, complex and almost unique relations between Russia and Norway there. And I wanted to understand how the broader uh, Developments in security, economic, and demographic might have influenced the the uh, potential for either competition or cooperation on Svalbard issues between the two countries. Thank you very much, uh, John. I, I want to go right back to Mike Sprague on that one. I feel like uh, that's that's in your sweet spot, Mike. I'm happy to do so, and then yield also to my to my colleagues. Uh, you know, there's far more activity now. Uh, related to Svalbard, its geostrategic area, but the uh, rhetoric between uh, Norway and, and the Russian Federation has ratcheted up quite a bit um, with uh, potential um, um, training there on behalf of the, on part of the Russian Federation, uh, and also the way in which both of these countries view that treaty. Um, there has been relative peace there in Svalbard, but more and more, in, in private discussions, there is conflict in the narrative. Um, a little more concern about what motives might be related to Svalbard, um, limiting or use of Svalbard by both the Russian Federation and others. There's concern, the Russian Federation, about uh, Norway's quote-unquote invitation uh, to have a U.S. military capacity, even though some capacity has been used to move goods and services. Um, so I see Svalbard perhaps as another rising, not tension area, but concern area um, in, in the Arctic, because when you look at it geostrategically, it's very important, but also there's a long history of a peaceful, rather peaceful treaty there. Yeah. But it is so unique, uh, and you'll see far more writings. Our colleague Stacy Clausen has done fantastic work on, on the Svalbard 
dynamic as well. I don't know that I answered that question, but but I would keep my eye on on Svalbard as we should keep our eye on Greenland and some other areas as well. This is a, a good opportunity being cognizant of time. Does anybody else want to jump in on this or offer any? Um, Matt, you're here, yeah. But quickly yeah. on Svalbard, I couldn't agree more with my, what Mike said on, uh, on, 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 on the archipelago itself. I mean, it's, it's today one of the, you know, the hottest piece of land in the Arctic. Um, there has been a flurry of articles in Norwegian press about Russia rehearsing coastal assault lending and other uh, military activities that they could be invading Svalbard or trying to place uh, military assets to protect the uh, quote-unquote the Russian population, Russian minorities in, in Barentsburg, for instance. But it, it, it's all white noise in the sense that I don't see Russia today, or at least now, trying to renege on the Svalbard Treaty or trying to push for concessions around management of the Svalbard Treaty and the archipelago itself. Um, what we could see is increased buzzing and increased inter air interceptions inside Norwegian airspace, and this has already been done, um, and signaling that Russia would want at some point to discuss uh, more heavily the regulation of the uh, fisheries protection zone, for instance, especially if other players want to come in, namely China, in maybe a decade or two decades. But that's, that's a long-term thing. Well, uh, Katerina, Michael, uh, Kaufman, any final thoughts from either of you? Um, I, I could uh, comment. That there was a question about the COVID-19 and the potential for further escalation or an escalation in general. One point I, I hope that I would have a chance to make, but I didn't get to, is that the issue we have in the European Arctic is the lack of, is this, is this absolute disbalance between increasing operational activity and complete lack of military dialogue. So we don't have any military-to-military -military contact in the European Arctic since 2014, uh, and there are some track to initiatives that are being born, but because of the COVID-19, how the general question is, uh, how can people come together and discuss these issues? Uh, how can we face uh, current lack of transparency, lack of discussion, and the possibility of uh, misperception if people are not coming together. Uh, Michael, final word to you. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Um, I think Walmart is definitely worth watching, not because I, not because I think anything necessarily is going to happen there, but because of the interaction between Russia and Norway, somewhat creates a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in this diplomatic economic dispute, while I think neither country has intent. To, to get into any kind of conflict there. On power projection and some of the things that people tend to complain about, particularly Europeans, um, I'm much more or less saying one there because a lot of these exercises, when you look at them, they're really tiny in Russia's capacity for sea lift to actually invade somebody previously is almost non-existent. We're talking about very small company-level exercises. Many of them are actually aimed to recapture Russian territory because Russians are concerned actually about Real expeditionary maritime powers like the United States that do have the capacity to land troops. Um, third and final point, you know, as always, that uh, you know, there's, there's a fundamental challenge of one looking at the downside of securitization in the Arctic, but also recognizing that if there is one area of international cooperation, Russia does tend to abide by international laws and engage, engage in the right form of revisionism that is legal revisions under international law. It probably is the Arctic and in regional multilateral forum. Um, and much of Russian militarization, whatever we may call it in the Arctic, fundamentally, it's, it, it's not the right term to say that it's driven by threat perceptions. It is not a game changer to the United States and to most countries. And if anything, from a pure competitive strategy standpoint, it's highly beneficial because of the tremendous amount of resources and military tension that it takes in Russia to focus on that area, as opposed to areas that are much more problematic to the United States and NATO. At least that's my view of it. Mm. Well, I, I want to apologize to uh, any callers still in the queue. Um, we've gone over time. I've got to bring it to a stop here. And I want to uh, thank very much all four of our speakers uh, and all of you for joining us. Uh, please join us again for the next Ground Truth Briefing. Uh, it will be advertised uh, on the Wilson Center website and by email. Uh, and I wish everyone uh, very uh, comfortable, safe, and above all, uh, healthy times ahead. All right. Thank you. This will conclude today's conference. All parties may disconnect at this time.